episode 315, the very unsexy essential for technology to drive outcomes that nobody talks about. Today, I am speaking with Bob Matthews. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Medicine is complex. It's getting more complex. We double what we know in medicine every 73 days. There's 800,000 journal articles published every year. It is impossible for any human to keep up. It's just impossible. There's a lot of talk about amazing technology to help humans manage the 26,000 variables in heart failure treatment or what have you. And yeah, I'm a huge fan of technology doing what technology is good at doing. But here's a point to ponder. Just like meds don't work if the patient doesn't take them, technology kind of doesn't work unless it's part of a bigger framework. Who in the practice uses it or deploys it? Who checks the dashboard and follows up with patients? And how do they follow up with patients? This is all process. Of course, there's good processes and not so good processes, but a value of process as a construct is you can incrementally improve a process. You can't incrementally improve everybody doing different things at different times. Nobody seems to talk about this in the, you know, cool circles, but any quality expert will tell you that complexity can only be mastered with process. Said another way, and this isn't arguable, if anyone is trying to improve the quality of care delivered in any provider organization or any organization really, regardless of whether that organization as a solo practitioner employs thousands of clinicians, the only way to improve the quality of care across time and the entire patient population is to standardize care at some level, i.e., you have to have processes or care plans or pathways or whatever you want to call them. If you don't, the quality of care will always regress to the mean. The average of care will always be the top of the bell curve. You'll always hover around, you know, 65% of whatever measure. Why will you never be better than average if everybody is doing whatever they decide to do solely based on their own individual experience at that moment in time? Because you'll always have your great doctors, the 95 percenters, and your not-so-great doctors, the 45 percenters. So if you want to level up, you have to deploy care standards that push up the poor performers. But those great performers, consider this, probably those great performers have a process. Otherwise, they wouldn't be consistently great, whether they realize it or not. Furthermore, great consistent performance generally happens with a team-based approach. That's more and more indisputable. And the second that you have a team, you need a playbook, otherwise known as a book of processes. This is one of those boring aspects of delivering great care that gets lost in the hype of cool technology. Everybody is an individual, but every individual is a human. And there are some basic truths and precepts and research for what good care includes and constitutes at different points in care journeys and for differing diagnoses. Today, I'm talking with Bob Matthews, president and CEO of Medisync. He's also VP for quality and care redesign for PrimeMed physicians. Our conversation spirals in a few different directions, but the central theme is this. How and why does a provider organization level up care? And speaking of leveling up care, we talk about the business reasons to do so right now for organizations who base their decision-making on their financials, which many in the healthcare space do. And once a provider organization has decided that they're going to produce better outcomes across their whole patient population, 
what are the major constructs necessary to pull it off? Process is a long tent pole in that big tent. So is culture, so is technology, so are the right incentives and quality measures. An upcoming Relentless Health Value episode with Grace Terrell, MD, also digs into this topic, so stay tuned. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Bob Matthews, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hi, Stacey. It's great to be with you. I'm sure there have been many listeners who have been involved in conversations where they have suggested to, let's just say, a payer of some kind, hey, you know, like we should do something to manage diabetes patients, for example. And the payer realizes that their member churn is every three years and is like, well, you know what? The major impact only transpires five years out is one of the issues and one of the reasons why chronic conditions aren't managed quite, I wasn't going to say well in this country, but maybe I want to say managed like period, is that we kind of have a sort of like a principal agent problem in that the person who's going to wind up bearing the consequences of the downstream costs isn't necessarily the person upstream who needs to pay for them. How do you address concerns like like that? I would agree with you that one of the issues, first off, it is not very clearly understood exactly how much each of these diseases costs. There's inferential data, but first off, very few organizations have done a very good job at managing chronic disease. Very few. One exception would be Kaiser Permanente, which, for example, got into the blood pressure management. And they, at meetings that I attended, they said, you know, wow, we were surprised two things. One, not only that we saved money, but second, how rapidly we saved money. So I called them and I had discussions and my question was, so how fast and how much? And they made the comment to me that we can't fully, we know it's a bunch and we know it was fast, but we were doing a lot of things and we don't know how to unwind one improvement cost from another. In my view, the problem you posed is about payers, insurance carriers is very real and very true. If you're going to sit there and watch members come in and out on a three-year cycle, you're very disincentivized to invest anything in better treatment. On the other hand, if you're an employer and you're paying these bills this year, next year, and on into the future, and as you know, some of the employers actually have post-retirement health care costs, this is huge. And that's one of the disjunctures in the system. Of course, the other is the patient, because the bottom line is if you want to live a longer life and you want to have a quality, it's an excellent thing that you don't destroy your kidneys or have a stroke or a heart attack. These are not life-enhancing experiences. The third reality is, as I say, very few organizations today know how to do a great job in managing. The national average, according to CDC, has been eroding. It's currently 48% of patients with blood pressure are well-controlled. Recent study in heart failure said only 1.1% of patients are getting the right meds and the right doses. If you look at diabetes, the average across the country, we believe, is less than 10% of diabetics are simultaneously well-controlled in blood pressure, A1C, and LDL. And do you believe the reason for that is because the financial incentives aren't there or haven't been to a large degree? And I'm kind of glossing over the fact that there are some quality measures, like there's star ratings, for example, where, you know, like how many percent of your patient panel has their blood pressure under control. But, you know, like maybe 
were not aligned relative to incentives, which I'd love to explore a little bit further with you. But then also it seems like you're implying that besides that, doctors kind of don't necessarily have the best methodologies to do this in the first place. Are both those things true? Uh, Yes, I would say that they are. And so historically, very few groups have known their blood pressure percent of success before with the last few years. For the most part, it's kept secret. No one knows what your scores are on those particular metrics unless you live in Minnesota or Wisconsin or California. And they have some reporting, but most states not. So so what you mean there is that like if I'm a patient and I'm shopping around, I want to find the best cardiologist or the best PCP because I have high blood pressure and I'm super concerned about it. Or if I'm an employer and I want to make sure my patients are, or my employees are going to the best provider of, you know, insert chronic condition care specialty here, it's very difficult to shop. Other than three states, and those are not the user-friendliest, but you can't find that out. You don't know. If I'm a doctor, you know, I'm a provider practice. Obviously, I went into medicine to help my help people, you know, to help patients, to help people attain the best health that they possibly can. What do I do? You know, like, what's your first step? My suggestion would be to recognize that I believe in the future, success in managing the major chronic diseases, there's a dozen or so that are, you know, are very prevalent and uh, very common in the population. And that's what a large part of primary care practice, adult primary care practice is all about. I would certainly join an organization that has come to recognize this and is actively pursuing efforts to become excellent in this area. The pressure is increasingly there to do well. And I feel sometimes that some medical group organizations or health systems, they put the pressure on, but they don't offer much help. And when you have a low success rate across an entire profession, to me, it suggests that there's something inherently difficult about the work, or we wouldn't have this problem, not to the degree we do. So who's trying to figure that out? And in the disruptive side, you see these some of these new primary care models that are coming out, and some of them are very focused on this. And I think that the physicians and other team members who work there are probably more satisfied because there's a team effort, there's focus, and hopefully they're bringing tools and other aids to not just, you know, whipping the pony to run faster. (laughs) That's one way to put it. So you said there's increasing pressure to do well. What is that increasing pressure on on practices to actually manage chronic conditions? And I'm assuming it's got some connectivity to value-based care, but maybe you could connect that dot securely. You know, I always believe that when you want to get oriented, you start at the big picture level. And to me, the central fact about American healthcare is that at this point, neither the patients nor their employers nor their governments can afford it. And, you know, today, this year, before COVID, CMS said we were going to spend $4 trillion on healthcare. And in 2026 or 2027, as the year turns, it's going to go to $6 trillion. As an employer who pays currently about $25,000 a year for family benefit, I don't have any more money for that. And I just talked to somebody in Connecticut who said, oh, in Connecticut, we spend $35,000 a year on family benefit. We have a lot of social pressure that more people want and need care. And quite frankly, we just simply cannot afford 
to get the outcomes we need with the system we have. It's like pouring water into a colander. So we're going to have to reform the system. And in the chronic disease space, the more blood pressure comes down, the more glucose comes down, the more lipids, you know, statins are cheap, the more heart failure is controlled, the less everything costs. So these are, I believe this is going to, the pressure is going to be there and it's going to be worse after the pandemic. I mean, our government will be what, five or seven or $10 trillion more in debt. There'll be a couple million more people without benefits. And we just have realized that we are drastically under treating and ineffectively treating African-American and other minority communities. They're not rightfully unhappy with that. So the pressure to do something different, I believe, is mounting, and I I suspect it will change, whether it changes things intelligently or not, I don't know, but it will force a change, or we will have half the country or more that just simply can't afford it, and that's probably not a socially acceptable outcome. So one of the things that you said earlier, you know, there's a lot of pressure being put on provider organizations to manage chronic conditions, especially some of these expensive ones, but not a ton of necessarily guidance relative to like how to do it, number one. If I'm talking to a physician, and maybe to some degree, it's because physicians think they can do it themselves, you know, like no cookbook medicine, Or what do you think the primary drivers are relative to kind of like why we are where we are at a physician or practice level? So I would make the point that the pressure to improve outcomes is just really now starting to heat up. So if you think of this as a uh, pressure cooker, I don't think the pressure is fully built up, but it is, I think, rapidly going to increase. The second part to your, of your question is, so why didn't or why, you know, what's the journey to figuring this out? I think one of the, there are several things that probably we need to focus on. Number one, primary care and chronic disease management in particular is the centerpiece of overall system performance. It's great when you have some amazingly skilled neurosurgeon who's got a laser knife and can do interesting things with an obscure cancer in the brain. But truth is, there's only a few patients. We don't have tons of people with that. We got lots of people with the simple stuff. And so primary care becomes, has to be valued and appreciated. And in my view, it has to be paid based in, on its outcomes. We can't simply, people say, well, just give us more money. I think you should give them more money, but You should give primary care more money, commensurate with its performance. And if primary care performs better, the total system cost will go down. We will not have so many people who need as many things. The brain cancers probably will happen either which way, but there'll be lots of stuff that doesn't happen. The question then is, well, why aren't we as good at this? One of the things we came to realize is Somewhere in the last 20 years, medicine changed, but our whole way of conceptualizing what doctors and other professionals do has not. So for an example, we went through the whole question of how one can optimally manage heart failure with uh, what's called HEFREF. And it has 800 million permutations. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care where you went to medical school. Very few people can manage this kind of complexity in their heads. And similarly, in blood pressure, I now know from working with our own doctors and many others, 
that there's an enormous degree of complexity that has developed over the last 20, 30 years. Toby Cosgrove, who used to run the Cleveland Clinic, has a great quote saying that we double what we know in medicine every 73 days, 800,000 journal articles a year. And we expect doctors to go in the room, figure this out in their heads, and come up with the right answer. Not going to happen. So these are the kind of things we need to break the paradigm of how doctors work and, and how they will handle this. But as long as there's, frankly, you get paid slightly more in the current fee-for-service system for doing a poor job than you do for doing a good job. So if that's going to continue to be the incentive, we're probably going to get more poor jobs than good jobs if you pay more for them. Well, you know, it's interesting because I was also reading an article by uh, Dr. Alan Kaplan and Dan O'Neill, who was on the podcast. And the point of that paper is very aligned with, with what you're saying. What they were, one of the things that they were talking about was basically that the healthcare system, how you increase your revenue is to add people. Like there's no incentive to add, you know, if you're getting paid by the hour effectively, which is what fee-for-service is, then why would you make any capital improvements? Exactly. Because you're not getting paid for them. And it sounds like I'm inferring based on what you said that, you're naming things that a computer would be pretty good at keeping track of 26,000 permutations. I mean, that's the strong skill set of a computer. Computers, exactly. <laughs> but there's no, the way that our current system works, there's no incentive at all. You actually lose money. In the fee-for-service model, that's just, the only thing you get rewarded for is speed. The faster patients go through, a CMS proposed a speed schedule, And the fee schedule said that if you have poorly managed blood pressure, we'll give you $35 or $50 more a visit than if you have well-managed blood pressure. So if I were to go out and hire or deploy or whatever some quality improvement and get better at blood pressure, every subsequent visit would pay me less. <laughs> this is a very perverse incentive. It's crazy. So yeah, there. if you do quality improvement, you use technologies, da, 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 your costs of business go up and it tends to chew up a little more time per visit. So your revenue goes down. And we then say, well, we can't understand why this is keeps happening. Well, that's probably part of it. And do you feel like, okay, so say that we go to, for PCPs at least, some sort of capitated model or pay-for-value model. Does all of this kind of, you know, if we incent people right, that's, you know, as we talked about before, kind of one half of the equation. But then the other half, it, it very much sounds like there is some work that a provider organization who who is very serious about ensuring that their patients have the best controlled hypertension or diabetes or, or heart failure. There's some work that they might need to do to help facilitate that. We began the effort to improve blood pressure outcomes in 2002, and we're very, very good at it now. But I want to tell you, it's not a laydown. I mean, the point is that you're right. If you're not incentivized, then why even start the journey? But just because you start the journey doesn't mean that you're going to succeed. If you look at the larger American economic landscape prior to, I'll pick an arbitrary date of 1980, most of American business was trying to go faster. And then basically international competition and Deming and quality and all of that 
made it a requirement that if you want to sell a car or a computer or whatever in America at this point in time, even a hotel room, you had better do a pretty good job in quality because otherwise people won't buy your stuff. And there were winners and losers in that transition, as I'm sure there will be in healthcare. The point of it is that at the end of the day, if you set up that competition and you agree to pay more for better, A, you'll save the system money, and B, you'll get better. But it's not easy. We run around 94, 95% blood pressure control success, which is a very high mark in a country with 48% average. But we had to really work at it. This is not, this isn't, you know, you don't just show up and, and that happens. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, also in order to do that across an entire practice, obviously you have to have some sort of methodologies and standardized care because you can't, you know, like everything's on a bell curve, right? So unless you have the standardization, you're going to revert to the mean at some level, right? You're 100% right. I have a slide that I often give when I talk to medical group leaders. And I show them that if you have an average, let's say you're a group that works at it and you have a blood pressure control rate across your group of 68% or 70 or 72. And there's many groups that are in that space then, you know, you have one or two heroes that are in the 90s, and then you have some that are in the 30s, and they're in a bell curve. And at the end of the day, if you want to have 95% blood pressure control, I show them our group's curve, which is we have almost everybody above 90%. Even we have one practice site that largely serves African-American socioeconomically challenged patients, and even they run between 88 and 91% blood pressure control. The Cleveland Clinic's best clinic doesn't have 91% or 88% blood pressure control. So the point of it is you've got to, you have to standardize. You Quality theory, I, I happen to be a black belt in Six Sigma and I know a fair bit about lean. You cannot achieve these very strong outcomes consistently across large groups of providers without effective use of quality theory. It just has to happen. So it sounds like almost as much as a capital improvement and having technology, and I know you've done some amazing work with some of the technologies that your group has created, Bob, but it, it almost sounds like there's another bit to this, which is understanding, you know, to having a culture within the organization that accepts and values the process by which this these amazing results are attained. I sometimes have reflected back, so... I've been very involved in some of the quality work that we've done, even though I'm not a physician. But probably for every hour of quality work, we've spent, I don't know, 50 minutes in what I call change management. Physician culture is a very, I I love working with physicians. I've done it my whole career. I I prefer it. It's what I want to do. But physician culture can be challenging, especially in this area of quality, because Very largely, docs were taught that this was something that they should or must be able to do in their own heads based on their own skills and their own intellectual development and all of that. I believe in skills and intellectual development and continuing medical education and all that. But yeah, the central theory of all quality work is that complexity can only be mastered with process. I mean, and we have more complexity in day-to-day medicine, you know, than you can imagine. It's enormously complex. And we as a profession just don't recognize it for that. 
And that's a paradigm shift that will have to occur. And how do you address a situation where, I mean, one of the things that a lot of, I've heard a, a lot, and I, I, this might sound a little cynical and negative, and I, I sort of don't mean it that way, but there's some amount of patient blaming. Like, well, you know, either my patients are different and more difficult and or I tell my patients the right thing to do and they don't do it. I feel like that's a, a gigantic barrier to enacting processes, number one, but then also basically achieving results, right? Absolutely. So another, I mean, that's a really astute and observation and question. Again, I have a slide in my deck (laughs) too. Which you've heard before. (laughs) What doctors believe about poor chronic disease outcomes, and it's a Gary Larson cartoon with two bears next to each other, in crosshair, one's in a crosshair and he's pointing to the other. And I typed patient and doctor into them. So yes, the belief, widely, widely shared belief is that the issue with poor chronic disease outcomes is that the patients are non-adherent or non-compliant. Now I point out if you're at 95% blood pressure control, we must be doing something to get them to take their medicines. It's not magic. But if you think about that, it sort of absolves the doctors. And now if you go to HIMSS or some of these conventions, you'll find there are $10 trillion worth of devices coming out that are going to be in their smartphones or wherever, and they're going to remind patients to take their medications and don't eat that chocolate donut. And it's clearly a problem, but we're very clear that a very substantial portion of the problem with chronic diseases is that the patients are not given the right medicines in the first place. And some of their non-compliance is, these medicines made me feel like crap. I don't want to take it. (laughs) And it's the wrong medicine. I believe that we do need to work on ways to help patients want to take their own medicines. But it is not accurate to say that that is the big problem. And I know you guys over at Medicine, you've developed an algorithm that helps identify the right medicines for a patient to take. And I think just this conversation, what it's leading me to infer is that, you know, maybe patient does know best, you know, like the patient's not taking a medicine and maybe that medicine is not the right medicine in the begin with. You know, it's like... Well, I would put it another way. I happen to be in Cincinnati, Ohio, and that's the corporate home of Procter & Gamble, arguably one of the better branding companies. So when Procter & Gamble wants to encourage somebody to do something, buy Tide or whatever else they sell, they spend a lot of time trying to think about how best to pose that invitation. And I'm not sure we have done the same... kind of work or job in figuring out how to help patients decide that, you know what, I really do want to take that statin. And there are plenty of patients who have all sorts of misperceptions and concerns about taking a statin. On average, doctors tend to believe it's a miracle drug and we should put it in the water and give the bottled water out to people who can't tolerate statins, but that's another story. My point simply is, we probably aren't good enough, and we actually work on this, we aren't good enough yet at figuring out how to get patients to be interested in doing this. And we similarly aren't good enough at figuring out which drug is the right one for them. And if you put those two together, that's how you get a 48% blood pressure control rate. You know, if you were going to kind of summarize your advice, Bob, 
<laughs> We've talked about a lot of different things, but if you were going to summarize, so say I'm a practice, I'm an ambulatory practice. Let's say I'm a PCP. What are the three or four things that I should be doing right now in the face of the, you know, where we are as in terms of technology, in terms of this pandemic, just in terms of the accelerating costs and the inability of payers to continue to pay the increases on the table? What would you do? First off, and this is a somewhat controversial comment, but I don't think this is a particularly good moment in history to be out there in a mom and pop one, two, three doctor practice as the world gets more and more complex. I mean, some love that and that's what they want to do, but I would affiliate or join with other like-minded physicians. I would have as my major strategic objective that we want to be paid based on a risk model or payment and performance are tied in some way. And I would commit our efforts to be a high-performing group. And a high-performing group has the ability to do good quality, keep patients safer, and bring the total cost down. And I would want a piece of the action that we can achieve as we bring down the total cost of care in uh, the patients that, that we care for. And I would not assume in the future that I have to go at the market through an insurance company. I might if there's an, if, uh, an insurance company that's willing and accommodating to this kind of vision. But I would say I need to get into business where, where I'm going to get paid based on what I can do. Doing visits for $100 a piece, A, the rate of uh, physician rate inflation is not kept up with inflation by a long shot. And it's just, there's no future in it. Talk a little bit about Medisync. We're entirely interested in the physician venture. We manage some groups and that gives us a great opportunity to try and, and use, improve and uh, various mechanisms to improve performance. Many years ago, we decided to be very focused on the chronic disease space and to get our groups into as much risk or performance-based comp as possible, which we've done. The groups perform quite well. And as we've gotten more and more sophisticated, we've recently begun to unfold basically an AI solution that helps do enormous amounts of computation about selecting optimal medications for the leading chronic diseases like blood pressure and heart failure and lipids and diabetes and asthma and the like. We see when we put these into place, our group's performance is exponentially. We're in some areas, I think blood pressure at this point, we're the best group in the country and we're among the best in diabetes. We were the best for a couple of years ago in an asthma um, cross comparison. We also as far as we can tell, we run about 15% below the Southwest Ohio regional costs of other health delivery systems. And from that, we make a fair bit of money on the value side. One of our problems is that some of the carriers, the insurance carriers, will see us save a dollar and not give us very much of that dollar. So we're trying to work around that right now. I assume there's a Metasync.com? There is. Bob Matthews, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. It was great to be here, Ivan. You asked great questions. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. 
Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.